next phase in our development. But the truth is we never move beyond the gospel. And in fact, if, if we have moved beyond the gospel to some other lens that's informing the way that we see the world, even if that lens seems Christian or biblical, we are looking through a different lens that's not the good news of Jesus. And, and we're told that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the power of God for salvation of all who would believe. And we believe as a church that that salvation comes again and again and again. Not just one time when you become a Christian or when you get saved, but God continues to save you through the same method of the gospel. The way that you turn over that leaf of forgiveness or unforgiveness in your life to be able to forgive someone isn't by moving beyond the gospel, it's by going back and remembering it afresh and applying it anew to this situation. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been applying the gospel to these situations. Last week we talked about politics. Um, And I just want to say thank you for being so receptive to that. I know um, maybe that was a challenging new way to think about um, politics, and many of you have given a lot of affirmation and said um, that you've been challenged to think in a new way. And so I'm just, I'm proud of you guys. Really, I am uh, for the way that you've responded to to that. And and I just want to encourage you, we can keep that dialogue open uh, when it comes to the future as well. Today, we're, we're going to talk about um, religion in general, but, but more, more along the lines of kind of the religious waters that we're all swimming in. Um, so a couple of the things that came up on the survey, one was that people were interested in hearing how the gospel applies to other kind of world religions that we think of as like Hinduism and, and Islam and, and Judaism. But then there was kind of an aspect where people wanted to hear about how the gospel intersects people that don't really consider themselves religious. And so I'm, we don't have time to cover everything in this series, unfortunately. So I'm like, how in the world do I bring together these two very... <laughs> Seemingly different things. Um, but the umbrella that kind of holds all of that together in our society is the word pluralism. That we live in a pluralistic age, in a pluralistic society. That that is the, the climate that informs the way that our culture understands religion in general and the gospel in particular. So whether or not you've You may not have even heard of that word before. It may not even be in your vocabulary. But the truth is, it's informing the way that you think and it's informing the way, certainly, that people around you think. So so let me just, let's take a kind of a a thermometer of the room. What, What do you think of when you think of the word pluralism? And be honest, maybe it's, I don't think of anything because I don't know what that word means. Um, But what comes to mind for you? Mormons? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of a, a relativistic sense of truth. Like, I have my truth, you have your truth. And so what's true for you isn't true for me, what's true for me isn't true for you. I can't, I can't impose my truth on you because that would be offensive. That, that's a pluralistic way of thinking. What else? Yeah, everything has value and worth. Everything is kind of equal. And so you can't really, as you Christians are so exclusive when you say there's one way to God. You can't say that. 
What else? Yeah, James. Right. So if you and I have a difference, we can't we can't hash out those differences because that would be intolerant of us, right? So we we have to kind of just respect that each of us has a different belief and we sort of let bygones be bygones. And you, like last week, I joked about how the fact that you don't talk about two things at the Thanksgiving table are religion and politics. And the reason why we don't talk about religion is because we automatically think that if you talk about worldview and, um, and belief, that you're immediately going to exclude and offend people. And so we just don't do it. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, yeah, it's, and so there are differences that aren't easily resolved. I think one of the the key elements, though, of pluralism is to, in a sense, say, "Well, those differences don't really exist, so we're not going to talk about those." You know, so like Christianity and Islam and Hinduism, they're all basically ways to God. And so let's just forget the fact that they're all different in their uniqueness and just emphasize the fact that they're all ways to God. And we'll just kind of whitewash them, which actually strips away all the diversity and the uniqueness of each of those perspectives. Right. Yeah, so maybe when we think of the diversity of religious and worldview viewpoints, either... I mean, that we can respond to those things in a number of ways. Either we can de-emphasize the uniqueness of our own perspective and say, I'm either just not going to talk about it or I'm going to emphasize the, the points that we have in common to, you know, because if I talk about the differences, I'm going to harm the friendship. Um, or we'll just get very anxious because we realize that maybe we should emphasize the uniquenesses, but we're very fearful of doing so. Um, so there, there's a lot there. And now here, here's what we have to kind of understand. Um, is that the church was actually born in a pluralistic society. We think in 21st century America that this is a new concept. That we that the world has somehow gotten to a point where it's very enlightened and now we have all of these faiths and viewpoints and no faiths at all, agnosticism and atheism, and they're all kind of present in society. We think, wow, we've really arrived, you know? Like, look how much more advanced our society is than the first century where everyone was so narrow-minded. But if you actually go back and look, what you see is that the gospel was first proclaimed to a pluralistic society where everyone had a different viewpoint and a different God. And so it, it's, it's as relevant today as it was then. It's not less relevant, it's actually just as relevant, and in some cases more so than we've seen, certainly in our country in the last 200 years. It's more relevant to be a gospel-centered people right now. So th- there's a great story that highlights how similar we live in today's age as was in the first century. Um, because the, the church is starting to kind of stretch its wings a little bit and, and interact with the culture around it. And it's beginning to bump up against some of these other beliefs and cause waves. And so I thought, man, one of the great ways, even though it's not in our reading currently, you'll We'll get to it uh, in our reading plan. But in Acts 4, we have a great 
uh, kind of picture of what does it look like for the gospel to begin to move in a pluralistic society? And what does that have to teach us? So, so that's what we're going to look at is the story in Acts 4. Um, and we're going to go from verse 1 to 21. We'll skip along the way a little bit. But this is what it says. The priests and the, chi- and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So the church is growing. The next day, the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to count today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Look at verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus anymore. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in the eyes of God, to listen to you? Or to listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And further threats, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And so, the first thing that you see right away is that the gospel is presenting a problem to the society, to the leaders, to the culture. It did then and it does today. Because the gospel is a universal, exclusive claim to absolute truth. And that comes through in what Peter says. And and in the story, it gets the apostles arrested. Later on, it's going to get them killed. It causes a problem. So today we have to realize that we live in just as much a pluralistic society as they did because we're told in the same way that they were told, you need to stop thinking about Jesus and talking about him as if he were the only way. You can't do that anymore. I mean, you need to get with the times. You need to modernize what you believe. You can't say that you have the one true faith, that he is the one way to be saved. Now, this isn't just a problem for the culture, it's a problem for the church, because how is it then that we, if we're gospel people, if we're good news people, if we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that through him everyone can be saved, then how do you, how do you see and bring good news in the midst of a culture 
where the news that you cling to, this news that says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's our faith. How do you bring that kind of exclusive news in a way that's off, that, and at the same time that news is often received by the people around us as being closed-minded, exclusive, and even arrogant? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to talk about Jesus with your coworkers and friends, um, but more often than not, you will offend people if you do that. Um, and my suspicion is that this is such a part of our culture, like I said, this is the water that we swim in, that, that this is the reason that many of us aren't more bold about the gospel in the places that we live and work. That we just go, eh, I'm, not, I'm not even going to bring it up because I'm afraid of what it might do to my relationship with my friends or my family or my coworkers. And so I'll just, I'll check it at the door and I'll be a pluralist like everybody else. Um, but we have to realize that there, there's a problem. There's a number of problems. <laughs> there's both the problem that pluralism has with the gospel, but then there's problems with that worldview in general anyway. And, and ultimately, I want you to see that there's actually, the gospel is actually good news to pluralistic people. But we have to do some work to get there. So, so what's the problem? What's pluralism's problem with the gospel? Well, um, if you haven't read Acts 3, what you find out is that Peter and John had just healed a man who was lame outside of the temple. He was lame for 40 years, which means he sat outside the temple and he begged for money. Peter and John didn't have money, but they had the power to heal him through the gospel. And so they said, get up, you'll be well. And then he begins praising all the people. Everyone notices and goes, how in the world did that happen? We see him every week and now he's walking around telling people that he's been healed. And Peter stands up and he says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this has happened. Credit is due to him. And so the religious leaders catch wind of all this and they bring him in and they ask him the same question. How was this done? And Peter gives them the answer. Now, but here's the problem. Peter could have said, it's by the name and the power of Jesus Christ that this man is healed. Period. I mean, if you were having a conversation and you were healed or something miraculous in your life happened and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Jesus Christ that did it by the power of his spirit, and many of you have testimonies like that, if you were sharing your testimony with people who didn't agree with you, I would suspect that you might still give credit to Jesus, but you would stop at that point. You would say, I believe it's because Jesus healed me and that's, be, that's the reason that I'm well. So I want to give credit to him. Here's the thing. Peter doesn't stop there. I mean, if you know anything about Peter, he has a hard time stopping his mouth from continuing to go in a lot of situations. But he goes on, and this is what he says next. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Would you go that far? See, in other words, he tells them the same thing he told the crowds, which was repent now. 
This isn't just about Jesus healing one man. This isn't just about Jesus being the Messiah for one group of people. He is for all people, and so this is evidence that you also should put your faith in him. Ouch, right? He isn't just one among many options. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior for everyone, even you religious leaders. See, uh, the the religious leaders were probably fine with Jesus being a healer and a teacher. Like if, if, if he said, you know, Jesus did this and that was the end of it, they'd probably go, okay, well, you have your truth and we have our truth. Go ahead on and, you know, no problem. But that's not what he was doing. Peter was saying he's not just the savior for a minority religious sect, he's the savior for you Jews too. Paul later goes on and he gets in as much trouble not with the Jewish leaders but with the Roman leaders for the same message. In Acts 19, there's actually a riot in the city of Ephesus because of the gospel's offense towards the pagan practices of the city. Because Paul's basically giving the same message. Put your faith in him and in him alone. Turn from all your other gods to him. Do it right now if you want to be saved. And it caused a riot. (laughs) I mean, talk about offensive. Now, why is it so offensive, though? It's because Roman society was pluralistic. You could have all the gods that you wanted. You could have gods over your meals and over your sleep and over the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and the land and the sea and the ocean. And everyone had their own particular set of gods that guided their everyday life. They had their truth and you had yours. But behind all of this was kind of an ascent that you had to at the same time worship the, the emperor of the Roman society, Caesar. And so one of the things that was required of you is you can have all of your other gods, but at the same time, you need to say that Caesar is Lord too. You need to say Kaiser Curios, which is Caesar is Lord. And in other words, you can have your private beliefs, but if you're going to be part of our society, you also need to have Caesar as part of the mix and subject yourself to him as well. And Christians said, no, we can't do that. Because Jesus is Lord. It's Christos Curios. And that statement made them a target of the Roman government. Now, here's the thing. Today we live in just as pluralistic a society, which means when Christians say Jesus is Lord and the only way to be saved, that faith in him is the one true faith, how do most people respond to that kind of statement? Not well, right? They respond with the same kind of indignancy as people in the first century did. Now, you might not get thrown in jail for saying that kind of thing yet, but it elicits the same kind of negative response, somewhere between disgust and hostility, right? So on the one hand... Christianity is exclusive in nature. We're going to look at the reasons why. But on the other hand, we're supposed to be good news people in an age of absolute tolerance. And so how do you balance that? How do you navigate this world where atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus and people of all backgrounds and all faiths all exist in one space? Do you throw out the belief that the gospel is the one way? 
Do you hide that aspect of the gospel to make it more palatable to your neighbors in this suspicious world? Because the world basically is saying the only way that we can accept you Christians is if you get with our program and realize that all religions are basically the same and no one can say that theirs is better than all the others. You can't do that today. But that to say that is to ignore the problem of the first century because Christianity was born into a society that said the exact same thing. Where people had the exact same um, reaction to the exclusive nature of the gospel. And yet, even though the message was exclusive, the people were pluralistic even though it was offensive and the people that held to that view were seen as weird and backwards, many people, as we saw in the text, still put their faith in Jesus. The church was still growing. People were still coming to faith. Even though it was exclusive, it was still good news. How? How do you do that balancing act? First of all, you have to see that there's problems with pluralism. you got to see that there are actually problems with this worldview, and I think in a unique way the gospel unmasks this way of thinking. Um, We can't be people who just think that because the world thinks in a certain way that it's automatically right. We can't think that way. We have to be the kind of people that look at our culture and go, wait, is that right? Is, Is that accurate? Or is there something else going on here that maybe nobody sees? Maybe the king doesn't have any clothing and nobody's willing to tell him. And maybe we get to be the people that can expose some of those things. So there's a few objections that often get raised um, when we think about pluralism and how the gospel interacts in it. But it's important to see that each one has problems. All right, so let's look at a couple of them. The first one is arrogance, the arrogance objection. And the arrogance objection goes something like this. You can believe in Jesus, but it's arrogant to think that he's the only way for all people. It's arrogant. You're superior to think that he's better than other great teachers like Buddha and Muhammad and Gandhi and others. Can we just agree that we're all basically equal and that each religious viewpoint and standing are helpful in their own way? That's the assumption. It's arrogant to think that, it's, that Christianity is somehow better. Now, there's a grain of truth in this because here's the deal. Christians have often been arrogant. Haven't we? I mean, and even worse at some times in the name of Jesus. And so there's a grain of truth because so many people that hold to this assumption that to believe in an exclusive claim is arrogant have dealt with Christians who have been arrogant to them. And, and their experience of those Christians has, has been an honest assessment of what they've seen in the lives of people that claim to be Jesus' followers. And so we have to start right off the bat and go, that's been so much of the experience of people that don't believe in Jesus, and so we, as the people of Jesus, we can't start with a religious argument. You know where we start? Repentance. We start with repentance and and asking of forgiveness of people that have been the brunt of a religious arrogance that has come from people that have 
walked out of a church building and then into an interaction with someone and made people feel like they were arrogant because they had been to church that morning. I was a, um, a waiter for a number of years in Philadelphia uh, while I was in school. Do you know when the worst time to serve was? Sundays. Because all your tables were filled with people who had just come from a church worship service. And oftentimes I would hear conversations with my coworkers about how arrogant and stingy and, and, and just un, just just people that they didn't want to be around or serve. They made it difficult to serve them. So what do you do with that? You take ownership of it. You don't denounce those people, but you take ownership of it and you say, I'm sorry that that has been your experience. That's where you begin. Is by saying, we have been arrogant, but we have no right to be arrogant. We have no right to, to give off a, a sense of arrogance that we're somehow superior to other people. We start with asking forgiveness. And yet, at the same time, it's going to seem like a contradiction, we have to be people that call others to look at Jesus and what he said about himself. See, it's one thing for Christians to be arrogant because we think that we're better, but it's a totally different thing for us to say, but look at Jesus and what he said about himself. Because you can't look at the claims of Jesus and come to the conclusion that he's the same as everyone else. You just can't. For example, he says in John 8:58, "Truly, truly, I very truly I tell you," Jesus answered, "Before Abraham was born, I am." You know what he's saying there? He's saying, "I existed before my predecessor who lived thousands of years before I was born." It's a pretty bold claim, right? Before Abraham was even on the scene, I was around. Okay, maybe that's the only statement. Turns out it's not. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, he said, I'm going to go to heaven and prepare a place for you, but when I come back, I'm going to destroy all evil and death in this world. I'm going to do away with all pain and sorrow. I'm going to make the world an incredible place to live because I'm God in the flesh. It's a pretty outlandish claim if you can't come through on it, right? Um, or he says in John 14:6, and this is the most famous of his phrases that um, puts him in a different category. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way that you get to the Father. You have to come through me. I am the truth about who God is because I'm the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what the Father is like, you watch my life. And I'm the life, which means if you want to receive the, the Father's life in your life today, you have to come to me to get it. See, I mean, right away you see the problem with saying that he's equal to others is what Jesus said about himself. Because no other religious teacher said the things that Jesus said and no one claimed the things that Jesus claimed. So you just can't believe in Jesus as being equal to all these other options, just one among many great options to choose from. He's not letting you do that. He, 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 he's saying that there's a difference with who he is and what he's come to do. And so you either have to take Jesus at his word or you have to reject him for his word. 
That's the only way that you can understand him. There was a great um, Christian activist, a Japanese Christian activist named Toyohiko Kagawa, who lived in the late um, 19th, early 20th century. And he was responsible for a lot of social reforms in Japan, and he was informed by his Christian, by the gospel. Uh, and he had come to faith in his early 20s as a young man. And he says this, <clears throat> I am grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths. Yet they could not meet me at, mo- at the moment of my heart's deepest need. I was a pilgrim journeying on a long road. I was weary and foot, I was foot sore. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins? See, it's, he's wrestling with his, his upbringing and, and, and yet what Jesus claimed and came to do. He's saying, I learned a lot from Buddhism. But Buddha never said, my blood has been poured out to wash you from your sins so that you can be put right with God. He never said that. He, he said that I could become a more compassionate person, but the problem is, I was trying to become a compassionate person and the world around me was closing in. And Buddha never said that he could come and wash away my sins. Muhammad would never come and say those kinds of things. No other person makes claims like that. They would come and say, follow my teachings and I'll show you the way. But no one ever said, come to me because I am the way. No one did. And Kagawa is saying, no one ever met me at the level that Jesus did. They were all helpful guides that I could go to, but none of them came to me. Jesus is the only one who came to me when I needed him. I might say like, well, okay. But there are so many other people and they all sincerely hold to other beliefs. How in the world can they all be wrong? How is it loving to tell them that they're wrong? And that's often what we've tried to do as the church, right? Is to just tell people they're wrong and we're right. Um I'm not suggesting that that's the way you should go, but I'll give you an example. Um, this week, I was um, having breakfast with my boys, and my youngest son, my four-year-old, says to me, with all the sincerity in the world, Dad, I think the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl. <clears throat> And I said to my son, Ethan, I love you. But you are sincerely wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, I, I understand, like, as a Patriots fan, that's incredibly arrogant to say. <laughs> um, and, and maybe Patriots fans among all fans uh, in the NFL have been the most arrogant. Um, but James is right. 
there is going to be a score today. And one of us is going to be right and one of us is going to be wrong. We can't have that same conversation next week at the breakfast table and for him to say the exact same thing if the outcome is that the Patriots win. Because it would be ludicrous to say that he's right and I'm wrong. Because the reality of the situation would have shown otherwise. Now, I'm not, it could go any way. So, you know, I'm, I'm just... I'm not making this statement. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm just saying there is going to be truth and there is going to be error and, and all will be revealed. And in the same way, we have to understand that Jesus is either correct about himself, he's either right and he is the Son of God, which means he's therefore superior to the other teams, Or he's wrong about himself and therefore inferior to the other teams. The only thing that he cannot be is the same. That's the only option that is not on the table. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is not, is the gospel better or worse or the same as other religious viewpoints? The question that you have to ask yourself is, is it true? Did it happen. That's the only thing that you can ask. Now, how do you know if it's true? How do you know if it's right? How do you know if the gospel is the way? The only way that I know as a test for the truth of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You have to ask yourself, did he rise from the dead? That's the only question that matters, folks. Did he rise from the dead? Because here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, guess what? Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, your family, your friends, your relatives, the people that lived before you, your co-workers are lost. This is not a trivial issue. They're lost if he did not raise from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what it comes down to. Did the resurrection happen? Did he get out of that tomb and appear to 500 witnesses as the scriptures say that he did? If it did happen then that is the truth, which means that it must be the superior way to God. It has to be. And if it's not true, then Jesus is no way to God. We are to be pitied. It's absolute nonsense to say, I believe in Jesus, but he's basically the same as everyone else. If Jesus really did rise from the dead if he appeared to 500 witnesses and it was written down in the Gospels where Paul says, and some of them are still alive today to give testimony. And many of those people who heard this message not only put their faith in him, who saw him rise from the dead, but willingly died for him. Then he really is the way that our sins are cleansed, which means he really is the way to God, in which case... He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
You know the other implication is? It means that if that is the truth, and he is the way, then it is the most unloving thing that we can do for those around us who don't believe in him to not tell them. The most unloving, uncaring, uncompassionate thing that you could do if this is in fact true is never tell them about it. I've always been struck by um, the comedian uh, Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller. Um, he's a magician. I'm sorry, I said comedian. He's a, well, he's, it's a comic magician act. You know what I'm talking about. And um, he, he also happens to be a staunch atheist. But he, he recorded a video in which he had an encounter with a Christian that he's never had before. Very, you know, what he describes as a good, generous man who was honest about the gospel and challenged him on some things, but was very winsome in the way that he did it. And he, he says this after this encounter. He says, I've never respected people who don't share their faith. This is an atheist. If you believe that everlasting life is possible, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them how to receive it? If I believe that a semi-truck is bearing down on you, but you don't believe it, at a certain point, I tackle you. <laughs> and this is more important than that. Now, he still disagrees with the gospel, but there's a, a, there's a strain of honesty there that we often don't wrestle with. And I think we've forgotten how to be truthful and humble at the same time. Those things are not mutually exclusive, as we'll see. All right, so here's the second one, is exclusivity. I've got to rush along here, but... This is what exclusivity, uh, uh, this kind of assumption is. There are billions of people out there and they have faith of all kinds or no faith at all. When you say the gospel is the true religion, it excludes all those people. The only way to be inclusive, the only way to treat people with dignity and respect, with tolerance and love, is to say that all religions are equally valid. Any claim to have the way is to exclude people around you and to treat them as less than you are. Uh, this is the assumption of 99% of the people that you come into contact with on a daily basis. Now, here's the problem with the assumption. To say that you have to check your beliefs at the door in order to love people is actually hypocritical. Uh, it's hypocritical. Here's why. The, the, the story that often gets associated with this understanding is the story of the blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this? It's kind of the the... The way to think about what it means to, to have everything kind of be the same. There's a story that says that there was an elephant and there are several blind men who are seeking to understand what an elephant is and they come up and they begin feeling about on the elephant and describing their experience to other people around them. And so one of the men says, you know, he, he feels the, the trunk and he says that an elephant is like a snake. And the, there's another one who's feeling about at the legs, and he says, no, 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 the elephant is like a tree. <clears throat> and there's another one that's <clears throat> feeling the elephant's side, and he says, no, the elephant is like a wall. There's another one that's got his tail, and he says, no, the elephant is like a rope. And there's one that has his ear, and he says, no, the elephant is like a fan. See, it said, every man is partially right about the elephant, every man is partially wrong. Wouldn't it be so much better if they just realized that none of them see the whole picture? Wouldn't they love one another better if they all realized that each of them saw in part and no one sees the whole? So it is the same with religions. 
Now, here's the issue with this parable. It only works if you have another man who isn't blind, who sees everything. That's the only way the parable works. Because, in fact, there is actually an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that there is another person there who sees the whole thing and is judging all the blind men going, you idiot, you don't see the whole thing. It's an elephant. It's more than what you can see. See, you couldn't tell the story unless you assume that you do see everything, which is pluralism to a T. And it's actually the very thing that you say nobody has the right to do. Leslie Newbegin says it this way about this parable. There's an appearance of humility that the truth is much greater than anyone can grasp, but in fact, but it is in fact arrogant, an arrogant claim with the kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So when you say to people, all views of God are equal, that in and of itself is an exclusive way to see God. That you're trying to evangelize other people to your particular religious viewpoint. It excludes other people. It excludes anyone who holds an exclusive view. And so you're doing the very same thing that you say we shouldn't do. It's, it's saying you have to abandon your exclusive way to adopt my inclusive way. Because I'm right and you're wrong. My understanding is superior to your understanding. Do you see how hypocritical that is? To convert others to your way of thinking is doing the exact same thing that Jesus is doing, only you're not being honest about it. You're saying my way is the way. And so it's hypocritical. Every way of thinking, including a pluralistic way, is exclusive to the other ways, which means that we're prone to seeing ourselves as superior to others. Does that make sense? That's the exclusive one. Um, we don't have time for the third one, so I'm going to skip through that. Here's what I do want to say, though. At the heart of this desire to be in a pluralistic society is a good desire. Um, it, there is a desire driving this where people that are, are trying to get people to lay down their differences and live together in spite of our uniquenesses, they're, they're trying to create a more just world. They're trying to create a place full of peace and, and tolerance and love and respect for one another where people can work together. That's the goal. But the problem is you can't get to that goal by throwing out truth because it throws out every truth but the truth that says no one can have truth, which is a truth claim in and of itself. And so you can't get to the goal by insisting that everyone check their beliefs at the door. There has to be another way to do it. And so the real question that we have to ask then is which one helps us get there? Which viewpoint, which worldview, which belief system, which news actually leads people to treat others with dignity regardless of what they believe and whether or not they believe your truth? Which one leads the people who hold to it as the way to walk with humility and seek mercy and work for the good of all people? I only know of one that does that. 
And that's the gospel. And that's why it's good news to people that need to receive it in spite of the fact of how backwards they might think that it is. Because the gospel is exactly the kind of inclusive, exclusive news that a pluralistic world needs. Now here's why, and this goes back to the text. Because what Peter says in verse 11 is that Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He was rejected. Jesus was rejected. He is the one that is the cornerstone now, which means that God is building a new society, a new way of thinking upon Jesus. Jesus is not just the first to to build upon, but he's the way in which we build. And so Jesus gives us the, the method by which we are to work in the world. Do you know what that method is? Loving your enemies. Praying for those who reject you. Forgiving the unforgivable. Laying down your life as a servant for many. Because he came and he died upon a cross to take the punishment for our sins so that God and his love could come into our lives. Which means we have the most radically inclusive way to think about the world. Even people who disagree with us. I mean, if you think about what that does to you when you believe this exclusive truth, it changes you. There should be evidence, and there's evidence in the lives of Peter and John that we see tangibly in the way that they interact with the world. And and these things, are they're not just evidence the gospel has come, but they actually make you into good news people that can love other people, that the kind of good news that people need to receive even if they don't agree with it to begin with. Now, the, the first is that you become humbly confident or confidently humble, however you want to uh, put that. But, I mean, look at um, verse 13. They saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, the only way that you receive the gospel is by humbling yourself. And admitting that you need help, admitting that you don't have all the answers, that you're, you're, you're not superior to anybody. In fact, in so many ways, when you understand the gospel, you realize how inferior you are. How much better other people are than you. And at the same time, you become confident. Now how does that happen? It's because when the gospel comes into your life, Your identity isn't based on your worldview being right anymore. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what he's done for you. And even... Christians get slapped with kind of this... the arrogance argument to say that they always need to be right about everything. And I think in a lot of ways that, that rings true. But here's what the gospel should do to us. It should make us into people that go, yeah, I may have received the right way to find God, but I didn't seek it. It's not because I'm enlightened or because I'm better or because I have the right belief system. God simply chose me to receive it, which doesn't make me better than anyone. In fact, it makes me worse. 
Because of all people in the world, I needed that message, maybe even more than others did. Which means that, that your whole life now is not based on your works for you. It's not based on your self-esteem. It's based on the fact that in spite of your sin, Jesus saved you and made you new. And when you receive that, it makes you into a person that's no longer superior to people that you disagree with, which, my friends, by the way, is what true tolerance is. See, we're we're told that true tolerance is, is... not disagreeing with everyone, but true tolerance is actually becoming like Jesus, which is loving people in spite of our differences rather than loving people only when they agree with you. And so we become the most generous, the most welcoming, the most hospitable people on the planet. We become people that don't revel in other people's failures and foibles and sin, we become people that champion them in spite of their sin, just the way God championed us and rose us from the muck of our disobedience. You see the difference? The people around us need those kind of people. The people in my neighborhood need those kind of people. And they respond to those kind of people. Because I, I love this story. Just, I mean, as radically poignant as Peter is to say, you must come to faith in Jesus. He is the name through which all people are saved. I can't stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. I just can't. And by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus, you won't be able to either, friends, if you're in touch with the gospel the things that you've seen, the things that you've heard from him, the things that you've experienced, the ways that he's transformed you and saved you and reconciled you and made you new and brought you into relationship with other people, you won't be able to stop speaking about those things as if he were your champion team. I mean, this time of year, we get, we're so rallied by our team and its successes. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, it's bringing people together. I'm excited for that, actually, for the city of Philadelphia that, that often, you know, doesn't get to experience some of that brotherly love that it was founded on. <clears throat> I think it's a good thing. But that story pales in comparison to the story of a man being raised from the dead to forgive you and make you new. I'm sorry, it just does. And you know who knows it? So many of the Eagles players. Nick Foles and Carson Wentz would tell you the exact same thing. Wouldn't they? They'd say, put your hope in him, don't put your hope in us. Follow him, don't just follow us. Yeah, root for your team, but root for him all the more because in the end, he's the one who wins. He's the one who saves. And, and, and this isn't just good news for one city. It, the gospel is universally good news for all people. Because at the end of the story, we see that after further threats in verse 21... They couldn't decide how to punish him because all people were praising God for what happened. 
In other words, it wasn't just the Christians who were praising God. Everyone saw the evidence of good news. Friends, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your clubs, when you're with your friends who are rooting for the team, do do they experience the good news of Jesus because you're around? Are their lives becoming increasingly filled with the good things of God because you, as a witness and a representative of His kingdom, happen to be there? We should expect that to happen, friends. Whether or not they believe. Knowing that some people, when they experience the goodness of the gospel, come into their environment that that they will ask, How can that same goodness come into my heart? And that's when we say, Jesus is the only way. It begins with loving them, and it begins with loving them all the more with the truth of the gospel. Uh, One of the things that are, this is all credit for this goes to the one who sent us there, because we wouldn't even be on our street if it weren't for Jesus. We just wouldn't. God orchestrated that entire thing. The the reason that we have the home that we have is because of Jesus. And we believe that one of the reasons that we've been sent there is to be good news people, that the street should become a better place to live, that people would say, "I, I would love to move on to Elbow Lane because of what's happening there. All people, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, everyone would say that same thing. And, and one of the, I had a conversation with someone who moved away from our street, and they happened to be at a funeral, and she happens to be Jewish. And she came up to me uh, during the receiving line um, because um, she had a family member pass away, and um, and she goes, "I've heard about you." Now she she had lived there for about six months before, uh, in the time that we moved onto the street, and then she moved away. And she goes, I've heard about you. I said, oh yeah, Rhea, what did you hear? <laughs> I don't know, like, could be anything, who knows? She goes, I've heard that since I moved away, people are spending more time with one another. That there's a party going on every month. And that people are just enjoying living there because you guys have moved onto the block. And I just want to say thank you. Because I really love those people. Now, what do you think I said? I gave a reason for the hope that she saw. It's not because I moved on to the block or Mandy moved on to the block or our crazy kids moved on to the block. It's because Jesus moved into the street. And he was already there, but he invited us to come and make it better. And friends, I just want to say he's inviting you to make this pluralistic inclusive world better. But at the very same time, to call people to put their faith in the one who makes it best. (laughs) Great timing. That means we should pray. (laughs) So let's pray. Father, thank you that you uh, have sent us to be good news people. God, forgive us of all the ways that we haven't been good news, that we have been... um, arrogant and superior 
because we think that somehow we have earned the truth that we've been given. Help us instead to be humble servants of all who love people in your name and yet at the same time cling to the truth that Jesus is Lord and desperately want people to come to know that same truth. Help us to know how to balance that so that others would see it and respond and your kingdom would grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jay. And we we give thanks to God for conviction uh, that's from Him. Godly conviction produces change in us, right? It stirs us. It stirs us to the work that He's called us to. Um, and this is the part of our service we call response time. This is the time where we, as a family of believers, right, bound together in the name of Jesus, by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus, get to uh, come up to the table together. We do this in groups, and we get to take of the bread, or bread-like substance, and the juice. And um, it's real bread. We have real bread. (laughs) We love all our non-gluten people, but real bread is really good. Um, but this this table unifi- unifies us because God calls us to his table and the banquet that he calls us to is himself, right? And if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he raised from the dead, this table's for you. Um, and we get to Just ask him to continue to do what he began in us when we were first called to belief, right? The work of salvation is that we are continued to be made like him at the time when we first believed. So we come together to do that today. We get to sing and we get to worship God. And we also get to give of our tithes and offerings, you know, things that aren't ours, uh, that we get to give back to the work of continuing the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God into the world in which we live and into the world that's further than us in Haiti um, and in different parts of the world that our church is faithful to give to. So pray with me today and then let's go forth and expect God to use us because he's so interested in living in us. Father, I just thank you that you redeem a people before they even know you, Lord, before they've done anything good. We've done nothing good to deserve you, Lord, but you have loved us nonetheless. You redeem us, God, and you want to make your home inside of us. And God, I pray in all these things that we do, even when we leave this building, the week ahead of us, God, that we would remember that you live inside of us. So Holy Spirit, come and fill us, reside in us, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.